Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but nothing replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we're doing part two. Just last week we were talking about the needs of knee replacements and when this is the most optimal treatment to do and what we should do to help keep our joints healthy and happy. And I'm delighted that we have Dr. David Ravinsky back. He is a wonderful orthopedic specialist at Wilcox Medical Center on Kauai. And we're going to talk about hip surgery. Why is it different than the knee? And what are some of the special considerations that we have to take a look at when we're talking about hip surgeries? And also, what are the new techniques available to help make this surgery as easy as possible for patients, but also more effective and last even longer than ever before? So thank you for joining me today, Dr. Ravinsky. Thank you for having me, and I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you again and focus on hip replacements today. Absolutely. Now, we've we talked about knee replacement, and although sometimes we think about, you know, the knee is similar to the hip, is similar to other joints of the body, it's actually an entirely different type of joint. Why do we look at these two joints differently? Is it something about their anatomical structure that makes them do different things in the body and require a slightly different approach? That's a great place to start. So the knee is a very complex joint. It not only bends, but also rotates. So the motions involved in the knee are bending, rotating, and sliding. So it's really important to match the anatomy of the joint so the surfaces behave the way they're supposed to and reproduce that normal motion and rotation as the knee rotates as it goes into flexion. The hip is in some ways a simpler joint because it's a ball and socket joint. But it's more complex because the pelvis is attached to the spine, and the spinal pelvic motion is very, very dynamic. And understanding each person's individual spinal pelvic motion is critical to doing a hip replacement and having an excellent outcome. Now, you mentioned that there's a, an issue with spinal pelvic alignment. How is that related to the function of the hip? What are the different forces that result in having the spine and or your entire spinal system interact more with the hip than with the knee? Well, what most people are not aware of is how much your pelvis moves just going from standing to sitting. So when you stand, your pelvis rotates forward, and that improves the coverage of the socket over the ball of your hip joint. And then when you sit, the pelvis tucks underneath you, and you sit on your sit bones, your ischial tuberosities, and they tuck underneath you when you sit upright, and that rotates back and gives more coverage on the backside of the ball. But every person has a different spinal pelvic range of motion. And you can imagine that as we get older, we can get arthritis and stiffness in our spine, so we might lose some motion. A normal range of motion is about 30 degrees. A stiff spine is less than 10 degrees of motion. And then some patients or people who are very active and flexible, like dancers or gymnasts or yogis, will have spinal pelvic hypermobility. So you have to think about when you're doing a hip replacement, what is this person's spine and pelvis doing when they're moving? And what kind of activities do they enjoy? Because that will determine exactly where you have to put the components so that their hip is stable and gives them the best function for the things they like to do and need to do. 
So could somebody who has problems with their hips that results in requiring a hip replacement actually be experiencing pain that is not necessarily directly in the hip joint because it's really related to pain coming from elsewhere? That's an excellent question, and it's important to identify what pain is coming from the spine and what pain might be coming from the hip. So one thing that people aren't aware of is your hip sockets are located right in the groin. That's hip joint pain is groin pain, and that pain is going to be in the center of your body. Sometimes we'll radiate down the thigh a little bit, and the first sign of hip problems or hip arthritis is stiffness of the hip and difficulty rotating internally. And that might manifest as difficulty cutting your toenails or washing the bottom of your feet. And for surfers, when you have loss of motion of the hip, loss of abduction, you can't ride your favorite surfboard. Your surfboard that is maybe 22 inches wide, a long board, you can't straddle your board anymore. Spine pain is going to be more posterior, more in the buttocks. It may run down the back of your leg. And any pain that's radiating down the leg, past the knee joint is going to be from the spine. So it's really important to identify, as patients often have both spine problems and hip problems, which pain is coming from where and decide which is the best treatment. Well, and you've brought up another question that comes up. Sometimes we see people who have severe hip arthritis, but it manifests as pain that might be heading towards their knee as opposed to having it be related to knee arthritis. So again, sort of illustrating that dynamic ability of the muscles and the hip joint to affect the other joints and other areas of the body around it. Exactly. And it's important as a orthopedic surgeon to have a holistic approach when you evaluate a patient to watch them walk and try to evaluate what's going on with the knee, what's going on with the hip, what's going on with their gait, what's going on with their spine to really tease out, okay, what is the major pain generator? What should we attack first? And what's our strategy for taking care of the whole patient? That's definitely important. Now, is the most common reason that people need to have hip replacement surgery related to arthritis, or what are some of the other more common causes that result in the need for that surgery? Well, the hip joint has exploded in terms of the things we can do with minimally invasive techniques, such as arthroscopy, and probably the two most common surgeries that we would do for someone uh, short of hip replacement would be hip arthroscopy to treat a labral tear. So if you think about the hip as a ball and socket joint, there's a a rim around the socket joint that's a lip. In Latin, it's a labrum, and sometimes that can be torn. So we can do a repair of the labrum. And then the other common surgery that can be done arthroscopically would be for impingement syndrome. So some patients have a bump that grows on the neck of the femur that can bump into the socket, and you can shave that bump down. And that is often associated with a labral tear. So you can do minimally invasive hip arthroscopic procedures. But in the U.S., likely because of our population, the most common hip procedures are definitely hip replacement surgeries. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. David Ravinsky. He is an expert in orthopedics at Wilcox Medical Center. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what are some of the unique approaches to figuring out what the source of your hip problem may be. And if you do need surgery, what type of surgery would be best for you? We'll be right back. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. And today we have Dr. David Rubinsky on the show. He is an expert in orthopedic surgery, and we are doing part two. Last week you might have heard about knee replacement, and today we're talking about the hip joint. Now, right before the break, you mentioned that one of the types of requirements for surgery would be potentially someone may have either impingement or a labral tear, and either one of those could result in an arthroscopic surgical procedure. Is that something that you see common, or does that usually result from some type of traumatic injury or overuse? Well, the impingement syndrome can be related to your anatomy. So Hmm. some people have a predisposition for impingement syndrome because of the way their ball and socket is formed as a child, and they're more likely to develop impingement syndrome. And people with impingement syndrome will develop labral tears. So it can be a developmental thing, but it can also be a traumatic thing. And it depends on your activity. So, for example, you might see a lot of injuries to the labrum and hockey players because of the positions that they get into. Um, it's more commonly a traumatic injury in that situation. So it can be both. It can be developmental and traumatic. So let's talk a little bit about arthroscopic surgery versus other types of surgeries. Can you describe what you mean by this type of minimally invasive surgery? Well, arthroscopic hip surgery involves same techniques that we would use for knee surgery and shoulder surgery where we make a small incision and insert a camera into the joint. And then we have small tools where we can do things like sew tissue or insert a shaver and smooth down cartilage or we can insert anchors and anchor down the labrum to the bone. But what we can do is limit it if the cartilage is damaged. So if someone already has cartilage delamination or arthritic changes in the hip, then doing arthroscopy of the hip won't really help them at all. It actually may hasten the degeneration of the hip. So um, it's good for patients who have a healthy cartilage and a younger hip, but for patients who have already degenerative changes in the hip, then hip arthroscopy is not recommended. And you mentioned that, unfortunately, in the U.S., a lot of folks might have more of the degenerative changes in their hip if they're having a surgery related to just general getting older, osteoarthritis, and some of those different types of arrangements. So is that more common that you see sort of degenerative arthritis related to a variety of factors that causes people to need to do a more invasive surgery of the hip? Definitely in my practice, the most common uh, reason for hip replacement is osteoarthritis uh, by far and away. And usually it's just degenerative arthritis, age-related. Sometimes it's post-traumatic. So after an injury to the hip, someone will have degeneration of the hip. The second most common cause would be avascular necrosis. So that's where a part of the ball will die, and that can be related to steroid use. So patients who have been on prednisone for a long time can develop avascular necrosis. It can be also related to alcoholism. But in half the cases, we don't know why the ball has had a dead spot in it or avascular necrosis. So those are the two most common. And the third most common is hip dysplasia. So you've heard of uh, congenital dysplasia of the hip or developmental dysplasia of the hip where the child is born with a shallow socket or dislocated hip. These patients, as adults, because they have wear of the hip from a very shallow socket, end up needing hip replacement. And I guess that would also include people who have had impingement syndrome and the end stage of this 
regrinding of the hip or hip instability will be uh, degenerative hip requiring hip replacement. So in a lot of those cases, we're talking about degeneration, which is a word that it happens more and more uh, we hear about as we get older. But when we think about that sort of that sort of circumstance, are there things that people can do who don't have arthritis that can try and minimize or reduce the risk of developing that as they get older? I mean, clearly some of the developmental issues that you might have congenitally, you probably don't have a lot of ability to change. But what could somebody who who otherwise doesn't have any of those developmental conditions do to keep their hip joint as healthy as possible? That's one of my favorite questions. I mean, I think that's true for the hip joint and any joint, that motion is the lotion. And we mentioned this before, that your joints are provided nutrition by circulation of the synovial fluid. So movement of the joint is something the joint absolutely loves. And that can be done with non-weight-bearing exercises such as swimming and cycling or weight-bearing exercises if your cartilage is healthy and then doing exercises that take your body through the full range of motion every day. So I'm definitely a big fan of yoga. I'm a fan of exercises like gyrotonics and gyrokinesis, which is a spine-based movement and strengthening exercise often used for rehabilitation and dancers. And I think that Again, maintaining a healthy lifestyle is important, and having good nutrition for the cartilage is beneficial as well. So really, anybody, exercise can help making sure you keep an appropriate body weight, making sure that you're eating healthy, you're exercising regularly. Those are sort of the keys to keeping your joints healthy. Now, let's say that time has gone on, and maybe now you've got that unfortunate osteoarthritis and degenerative joint problems, and you do need to have hip surgery. Now, I remember many years ago when I was in medical school watching hip replacements be done in the operating room, and I'm curious, times have changed. What sort of things do we do differently than we might have even just five or ten years ago for somebody who might need to consider a total hip replacement? Well, so much has changed, and I'd almost want to say everything has changed. And you made me reflect on the first total hip that I did in 1996 and how different it is from the hip I did today. (laughs) And I would say the differences are the surgical approach, the implants, and then the technology that we use to do the operation are all different than what has been done in the past. Well, let's break that down a little bit. The surgical approach, how has that changed? And you can compare your 1996 hip with the one you did 2023. Well, I was trained in the traditional posterior approach, and still in the United States, most hips are done through a posterior or a lateral approach that requires splitting the the gluteal muscle and the incisions on the backside of your body. And it gives great exposure to the hip, and it's a very safe way to do the hip replacement. But afterwards, patients are required to maintain hip precautions to prevent dislocation, and it's very hard to get x-ray in there to see what's going on and get accurate implant positioning. So with with the transition, I went in 2007 and studied with Joel Mata in uh, California, who had brought over a technique from France of doing a hip anteriorly through a direct anterior approach. So that's the biggest change is this anterior approach where we make an incision and we go between the muscles instead of cutting the muscles, and we have much more direct access to the hip, 
the patient can be in a supine or flat position on the table, so we have a good assessment of their pelvic position. We can get the x-ray in there, and we can very efficiently get the hip done. The surgery used to take three hours. Now the surgery takes about 45 minutes to an hour. Patients used to come in the hospital the night before and stay for three to five days, and then many would go to rehab facilities. The bulk of our surgeries are now done as an outpatient. And the anterior approach has facilitated this because the initial recovery is so much faster. And uh, the patients are up and going right away, and it's a dramatic difference. Well, it definitely sounds like easier, faster surgery, easier, faster recovery. We're on the right path there. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We're talking with Dr. David Ravinsky, orthopedic specialist at Wilcox Medical Center. When we come back, we're going to talk about the other changes that have occurred in surgical technique and in the types of implants that are available now that weren't even when Dr. Ravinsky first started doing surgeries. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we are doing part two of our orthopedic series. Last week we talked about the knee. This week we're talking about the hip. And I have Dr. David Ravinsky on the line. He is an expert in orthopedic surgery, and he practices at Wilcox Medical Center. And right before the break, you mentioned that the difference in surgical technique included the surgical approach, the use of different types of implants, and the technology we use to assist. Now, as far as surgical approach, we now do an anterior approach. You mentioned that that requires less surgical time, but also a much easier recovery. And that's a difference for when you first started learning about doing hip surgeries. And so you mentioned there were two other things that have changed in the last several years, one of those being implants and the other one being technology. So with this anterior approach, with this difference in how the knee can be approached, sorry, the hip can be approached and expand and and improve the recovery process for patients. There's now different implants. How have those changed in the last 20-some years or so? Well, the implants are similar to the knee in that they're much more durable, and that's because of a change in the material. So the, the predominant material used to be cobalt chrome, and as we hinted before, it has cobalt, chromium, and nickel. Some people can develop a sensitivity nickel, but also when you attach the ball to the stem, there can be fretting and shedding of metal, and that can cause metallosis. So we're getting away from cobalt chrome and using more ceramics and titanium because those are more durable and also hypoallergenic and more biocompatible. And these implants tend to be coated with substances like hydroxyapatite, so the bone goes into the metal, and after six or eight weeks, the bone really becomes connected to the metal, and it becomes part of your skeleton. And then the acetabular side, the socket side, we use polyethylene that's treated with radiation, and it makes it very, very hard and very durable like a ceramic. So what we're seeing in registry data, for example, in Australia, after 11 years, almost a flat line of no failures of these implants because of such little amounts of wear. And when we tested these implants in the simulator for 
45 million cycles, which is about 30 years of wear, we've seen very little wear of the polyethylene or of the ceramic surface. So more durability allows us to feel more comfortable putting these implants in younger patients and let them resume higher level activities. But also these implants are very modular and we have a variety of implants. So we have over a thousand different combinations of implants. So we can look at your anatomy and when we do our templating and computer-aided design, we can really build a custom total hip for each patient that reproduces their anatomy, the angle of their femoral neck, the offset of their hip to restore their normal length and tension relationship with the muscle. And again, if you can restore normal anatomy, what does it mean to you as a patient? Your recovery is easier because your muscles are happier. Well, that sounds like a fantastic advancement because, as you mentioned, if you can do the surgery and not impact some of the muscles that previously had, did have an impact in a posterior approach, but now you can also have less wear and tear of the actual implant over time and create a customized way to get the particular type of modular components that work the best based on someone's natural anatomy. We're really customizing, as you mentioned, almost like every person has their own custom implant by using some of these standardized materials, but of such different sizes and combinations that it's really, it's doing exactly what you want, which is restoring the function that somebody had previously prior to developing that degenerative change that went on with their hip. So you mentioned computer-aided design. So now the technology component, so in addition to the approach and the implants, the technology component has also improved dramatically. I mean, I have to say, back in 96, I think the internet existed and we were using it, but nowhere near the extent to which we do now. I imagine that technology in the use of this particular joint replacement surgical field has also exponentially advanced. Absolutely. And again, it goes back to planning and execution. And uh, at IBM, the motto was plan your work and work your plan. And the way we would plan a surgery in 1996, we'd get these big acetate radiographs and we'd take a template and lay it on top of the radiograph and draw with a marker exactly where we're going to do our surgery. And that's a good way to do it back then. But now we have low radiation digital x-rays that are calibrated and we have digital templates so we can, before we get to the operating room, know exactly what size implants we're going to put in. But what's really exciting is dynamic templating. So what we do is we get a lateral x-ray, digital x-ray, of you standing and sitting. And we can input that information into a three-dimensional modeler. And based on your personal spinal pelvic motion, we can calculate the exact position of the cup to optimize the stability of your hip in your standing, walking, functional position. And that is exciting to be able to do dynamic templating. And then in the operating room, we can take this very precise plan that we've created, and now we have a clear target, and we can hit that target. So we can put the patient on the table in a supine position. We can reapproximate their standing posture based on their spinal pelvic motion and their preoperative standing x-ray. And then we have an artificial intelligence tool that's linked to the x-ray machine that we use in surgery. And this allows us to 
show the computer a couple of landmarks in the pelvis, and then the computer knows where those landmarks are. And as we're doing the surgery, it'll tell us within one degree of accuracy exactly the position of the cup relative to the pelvis and exactly the leg length and offset so we can execute our plan very precisely. And it's exciting to have this new technology and to have this available to offer to our patients. Well, you know, when you talk about the dynamic imaging and templating you can do, I often try and explain to patients that, you know, when you're told to stay still doing an X-ray or an MRI or a CAT scan or whatever it may be, you're not moving. And so if your problem is more functional related to the function of a part of your body, we may not see it as an anatomical problem on an X-ray because you're not able to move. So often doing something that allows for that interpretation of movement helps to give us the more comprehensive approach to figure out what's really going on with with this particular area of your body, in this case a hip joint, because we have that extra information. Because the body moves and just doing a static image when you're not moving may not give the full picture as to where the different joint effects are and where the forces align with different muscles in different areas of the pelvis and the spine and the hip joint together and really reflect what's going on when you're moving out in real life. So that idea of being able to use the dynamic features to template really tends to make a huge difference in my mind of how we can really customize the idea of the implant to the specific anatomical requirements that that patient may have with movement as opposed to just static when they're not moving at all. Exactly. I mean, that's a very clearly stated way of putting it. I mean, if you think about it in a very simple terms, when you have someone who has specific functional requirements, you should tailor the surgery to let them get back to what they want to do. So if someone is a Taekwondo expert and they need to kick over their head, they're going to need a higher degree of hip extension than, than you know, hip than I need to do in my life, right? And I need to make sure that their hip replacement enables them to do this activity that they love to do and is very stable. And we also have to think on the other spectrum um, of someone who has a very stiff spine. So someone who has a stiff spine, their hip and pelvis relationship may be stuck in a more vertical orientation. They may be stuck in a sitting position. So when they're standing, if I put the cup in a standard position, it's gonna be unstable for them. So patients who have spine arthritis or spine surgery are at high risk for hip instability. And, you know, patients in the population that I see often have hip and spine problems. So we have to be working together with our spine surgeons, with our patients to do the, the best for them. They have a stable, functional hip. Well, and you just brought up another point that, that bears discussing briefly is, you know, arthritis doesn't discriminate if it's in your hip joint it may be in your back. It could also be in those little facet joints. It could also be in your knees. It could be in your neck. So that depending on what the cause is of the arthritis that you have, it may be everywhere in your body. And we have to look at how the body works as a whole in order to come up with the best solutions for you. Absolutely. And, you know, the question often comes up, okay, I have spine surgery and I have hip surgery, both, you know, I have issues in both areas. Which one should I do first? And I would absolutely recommend if you're going to get a spinal fusion to do that before any kind of hip surgery because the spinal fusion will set the position of your pelvis in space. And then we can assess 
what effect that spinal surgery had on your spinal pelvic motion when we decide where we're going to put your hardware to optimize your stability. Well, I think you've just talked us into someday scheduling a part three so we can talk some more about some of the advances and how do you time different surgeries and how do we get a comprehensive plan of care for people's joints. I do want to thank you so much for even doing our two shows already. Thank you, Dr. Ravinsky, for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on HPR and follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on the HPR app. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We will bring Dr. Ravinsky back for a part three sometime in the next few months. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then. Woo!